Good morning. It's a joy to welcome you to worship. I add my welcome to Shane's and also for the college students who are back after a semester studying. I pray this summer is restful and fruitful for you. Uh, one of our college students, Sarah Catherine Straw, is going to be uh, offering her musical talents this afternoon in a recital, a violin recital at 3 o'clock here in the sanctuary. We've heard Sarah Catherine play many times in worship. And so I'd encourage you, if you have uh, some time this afternoon, to come back and, and to listen. And if you do come, we'd encourage you to bring a canned good uh, that might go to, to the Rivermont Area Food Pantry. Uh, it's one of the things that she's really passionate about. So would encourage you to do that. In the meantime, I invite you to find your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 21. If you don't have your Bible, you'll find a pew Bible there in front of you. You'll find our text on page 907. Well, this morning marks the end of our series in the Gospel of John. And throughout this series, we've uh, been given a front row seat to the life and mission of Jesus. We've seen uh, Jesus move people from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light. And for those who would hear it, the message was very clear. Jesus was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the very Son of God. He was God's answer for the sins of the world. He gave His life that we might have life in His name. And as we turn to chapter 21, we get a stunning picture of what that life in Christ looks like. What we see here is that it's a picture of repentance and restoration. The reconciliation of a broken relationship, especially and specifically between Jesus and Peter. Broken because of Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus. Peter, like the others, was overjoyed by seeing the empty tomb. Thankful that death didn't have the last word in Jesus' life. But I wonder if that was the only feeling that he had. I wonder if he also maybe felt a sense of dread. You see, there was a breach in their relationship. A divide caused by his denial. What Peter had done felt unforgivable to him. He had abandoned the very one that he promised he would never leave, that he would die for. How could Jesus ever forgive him? We sometimes wonder that too, don't we? There are those sins in our life that cast us into such deep despair. We wonder to ourselves, or or maybe even in our prayers, how could Jesus possibly forgive me for what I've done? We don't have to imagine what Peter is feeling. We know that feeling all too well. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter there, and he doesn't leave us here either. He doesn't leave us to to languish in our guilt and our sin. He comes to us. He pursues and engages our hearts in repentance. He does that so that we can experience restoration. Restoration of our joy and our peace in His salvation. Well, what does that look like in the believer's life? Let's look to our text and find out. Again, John 21, I'll begin reading in verse 4. Just as day was breaking... Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, 
and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got up on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And skip down to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And yet we understand that our hearts are often blinded and darkened to your truth. And so, oh, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you give us vision to see your word, your truth, that we might understand it and that we might apply it to our life? We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, by now, many of you have probably heard the names Chip and Joanna Gaines. Whether you've seen their hit show, Fixer Upper, or read their autobiography, The Magnolia Story, no doubt you have been charmed by their charisma and creativity. In fact, I read recently that the show, Fixer Upper, is HGTV's most popular show in their entire history. Now, I have a theory as to why that show is so successful. My theory is that we are drawn to the restoration of brokenness. We love seeing the irredeemable being redeemed and made beautiful. We love seeing the broken down, the outdated, get torn down and remade. It's like seeing a little bit of heaven come down to earth. I see their show as something of a metaphor for the Christian life. It's a powerful illustration of God in Christ Jesus taking the brokenness in our life and making it whole. Of taking the seemingly irredeemable pieces of our life and redeeming them for His purposes. We do struggle, you know. We struggle to believe that God could be attracted to weakness and brokenness. But we forget He's not just an architect. He's not just a builder. He's a reclaimer. He sees His image in us. And though that image has been distorted and corrupted by the fall, He seeks to renew that image in us. He longs to reclaim and to restore us. He seeks to gut our life of self-reliance and self-salvation and rebuild it through the finished work of Christ. But as with most metaphors, this one breaks down as all the others seem to do. Why? Well, simply fixer-upper, the renovation that they do only takes 30 minutes to complete. The Christian life, however, takes much longer. It takes a lifetime to complete. I think it's why we're so drawn to the show, fixer-upper, or any other show for that matter that is about home renovation, because it doesn't take long to see the finished product. We can go from unfinished house to demolition and finished house in a span of 30 minutes. The Christian life takes much, much longer, and it's so much more frustrating. Peter is experiencing that frustration firsthand. He's experiencing the frustration of a failed promise to die for Jesus, a failed promise to stand by Jesus. 
Peter is a man in need of reclaiming. And you and I are also in need of reclaiming. We also need the transforming power of Jesus to reclaim our lives. What does that reclamation look like? Well, first, it's a restored confidence. As the chapter opens, Peter and six other disciples are fishing on the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And for a group of disciples whose world has just been turned upside down, the familiarity of fishing must have been a welcome break. It was the only thing they probably felt sure of and confident in. Now, some speculate that Peter is attempting to return to his old way of life, that he's somehow forsaking the call to be a fisher of men. I don't think that's the case at all. Based on Matthew's resurrection account, I think Peter and the disciples are simply waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for him to show up and to give them further instructions. They thought better to be fishing than to be idle. As is often the case, fishing can be fruitless. After a night of fishing, they have nothing to show for their efforts. Even beginner fishermen know that they are at the mercy of the fish. Sometimes working hard and working smart will get you nowhere. As they get close to shore, unbeknownst to them, Jesus is watching them. He sees them and he asks for a fishing report. Now I'm told that fishermen don't always like to admit when they've had great success. After all, they don't want others to find their sweet spot. And yet they also probably don't want others to know when they failed either. They don't want to have to admit that they have failed to catch any fish. And I can relate to not wanting to admit failure. I hate to fail at something, especially something that I feel like I'm supposed to be confident in. Failure, you see, creates this anxiety that I don't measure up, either to my expectations or to somebody else's. Failure brings me face to face with my weakness and my inadequacy, and I hate it. And yet, failure is a normal part of the Christian life. Christianity doesn't just allow for it, it expects it. Sadly, we are often the last ones to realize that. British author Malcolm Muggeridge once said, Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. The message of the gospel has always been that we are far more sinful than we ever dared imagine. Yet in Christ, we are far more loved than we ever dared hope. Imagine what kind of community we might enjoy if we embraced our failures. If we owned up to our weakness and our inadequacy, how transforming would that kind of transparency be? How freeing would it be to be seen as we truly are and not the image that we project? To put our trust in Christ's competence and not our own. To let go of, of trying to have it all together and let the one who holds it all together transform us. A Nashville friend of mine planted a church a few years back with this motto. He said that we are an unfinished people resting in the finished work of Christ. I love that. I think it beautifully expresses God's desire for us to look to Jesus and His perfect work on the cross, to let Him transform our imperfections by His perfection. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that it is our failure and our weakness that activate God's strength. God's power is made perfect and complete in our weakness. Notice that when the disciples admit their failure to catch anything, Jesus' power is made what? 
perfect in their weakness. Their weakness activated his strength. He calls out to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. And they found some fish. 153 large fish to be exact. So many fish they couldn't pull the net back into the boat. Does this sound familiar? It should. The very same thing happened back in Luke 5 that Shane alluded to when Jesus first called them as disciples. They had gone the whole night without catching anything. And having come home empty-handed, they are on the shore washing their nets. At the same time, Jesus was preaching to the crowds nearby. And needing more space to preach, he asked Peter to take him out on his boat that he could preach to the crowds from there. And then once he finished speaking, he instructed Peter to take the, the boat further and deeper into deeper water. So they could fish. And against his better judgment, Peter humors Jesus and takes him out. He must have felt foolish to be one of the only ones out there fishing at that time of day. It was like fishing without bait. No sooner had he let his nets down that the water below began to foam. The nets started to pull. There were fish down there. Lots of fish. They signaled their partners to come over in their boat to help take the fish in. There were so many fish... Luke says that the, that the boat started sinking. It was miraculous. It was supernatural. This shook Peter to his core. In the face of such power, what did he do? Shane said it. He falls down before Jesus and tells Jesus to leave him. Why? Because Jesus has swamped his life with amazing grace. From empty nets to bursting ones. In the face of such divine power, Peter is confronted by his sin, confronted by his unbelief. He doesn't just feel exposed. He feels undone by the weight of his unbelief. He sees the gulf that exists between God and man. And he asks Jesus to leave. But notice Peter's response in verse 7 of our text. Once Peter realizes it's Jesus, what does he do? He puts his outer cloak on. And he literally throws himself into the sea. He casts himself out of the boat like a net. And he starts swimming toward Jesus. Not away from him. In the face of such power and grace, Peter doesn't run away from Jesus this time. Or doesn't ask him to leave him. But he runs to him. What changed? His confidence. In Luke 5, his confidence was in himself. He boasted in his strength which meant in the face of God's strength, he was unfit. But now by chapter 21, his confidence had shifted. It was no longer in himself. It was in Christ. His confidence wasn't his strength or resolve anymore. It wasn't his competence or success. They had all failed him when he denied Jesus. No, his confidence was now in Jesus alone. He was trusting in the forgiveness that Christ had won on Calvary. He was an unfinished work resting in the finished work of Christ. Let me ask you, when you sin, when you fail, do you run away from Jesus or toward Him? Does the guilt of your sin cause you to think that you're unworthy of His forgiveness? Does the shame of your sin cause you to question God's love for you? How could He love someone who thinks thoughts like I do? who acts selfishly like I do, who speaks harshly like I do. My friends, it is not in spite of your sin that Christ died for you. It is because of your sin 
that He died for you. It was for the joy that He endured the cross, scorning its shame, that you might have life in Him, so that your confidence in this life and the one that is to come would be in Him and Him alone. Secondly, we see this reclamation is a restored relationship. Peter's reclamation project is a little harder, a little bit more intense. John tells us in verse 9 that when they got to shore, they saw fish and bread cooking on a charcoal fire. Do you know the only other mention of a charcoal fire in John's gospel? It was the night that Peter denied Jesus. They were in the courtyard of the chief priest's house, huddled around a charcoal fire. I don't think this detail is incidental. I think John includes it because Jesus wants to use it to invite Peter's repentance. After breakfast and in the presence of the other disciples, Jesus begins this reclamation project. He asks Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The obvious question is, more than what? Some have speculated that Jesus is referring to the boats and the nets, the life of fishing that Peter had lived. Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, this would fit with those who saw this fishing venture as an escape, as, as Peter leaving the call to be a fisher of man, but that doesn't fit for reasons that we've already stated. Others wonder if Jesus means, do you love me more than these disciples? Is your affection for them greater than your affection for me? Well, that seems unlikely as well. That question doesn't really connect to any other themes that we've talked about in John. And let's be honest, if anything, Jesus was trying to get them to love each other more, not less. There is a third and more likely scenario that fits with the context. I think Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Now, if this were a movie, there would be a flashback. The scene would flash back to the night Peter denied Jesus. There they are in the upper room and Jesus tells the disciples that he is going away and and where he is going, they cannot come. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That flashback dissolves into the Garden of Gethsemane. There Jesus predicts the disciples will fall away because of him. Peter boldly promises in front of the disciples, though they may all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. These disciples may not have what it takes to stand the the trial when it comes, but I do. I will never fall away. And the flashback is gone. How it must have hurt to hear Jesus' question. To be reminded of His bold claims must have stung Him. Especially to be asked in front of the other disciples. How embarrassing and yet how necessary. You see, Jesus wasn't the only one hurt by Peter's claims. The other disciples were hurt as well because Peter publicly sinned against his fellow disciples. He needed to be confronted publicly so that he might repent publicly. Jesus wants to make sure that Peter knows what he is repenting of. We also need to know what we are repenting of before a relationship can be restored. I know in my own life, my repentance can sometimes be shallow. It doesn't go deep enough. Well, what does a shallow repentance look like? If I lash out at someone in an unrighteous anger, shallow repentance only repents of the anger. It says, I'm sorry I got so angry. I don't know why I got angry, but I'm sorry and I won't do it again. 
See, shallow repentance repents of the symptom of sin, but not the sin itself. A deeper repentance goes to the root of that anger. It says, I'm sorry that my need to be right, or I'm sorry that my need to be in control, or I'm sorry that my need for comfort made you the target of my unrighteous anger. I am so grieved that I've done that. Can you forgive me? That's the deeper repentance Jesus calls us to exhibit. Now Peter responds to Jesus' question this way. He says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now commentators have tried to connect the different uses of the word love here. Jesus uses one word for love. Peter uses another. Jesus asks Peter, Do you agapao me? Now agapao is often referred to as divine love or sacrificial love. Do you love me sacrificially? In other words, are you willing to die for me? Do you have that kind of love? Peter responds to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Now phileo is often referred to as affection or brotherly love. So why the different use of the word love here? Well, some think it's a concession by Peter. I've already failed to keep my word to agapao you, Lord to love you sacrificially, the best I can do is to phileo you, to, to love you like one of these disciples or, or my brother Andrew. And that certainly seems plausible until you consider that John often uses agapao and phileo interchangeably. They are indistinguishable in his gospel. But not just John, even the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is also not consistent and uses these words interchangeably. No, I think here the emphasis is not on the measure of Peter's love for Jesus, but it's more on Jesus' knowledge of Peter's love. D.A. Carson writes, Peter does not try to answer in terms of the relative strength of his love as compared with that of the other disciples. He appeals rather to the Lord's knowledge. Peter is saying, despite my bitter failure, I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus asks Peter two more times if he loves him. And both times, Peter appeals to Jesus' knowledge of his love for Jesus. Yes, Lord, you of all people know that I love you. Peter is grieved by these questions, but not because they are unmerited, but because they are. For Peter and Jesus' relationship to be restored, it required a wounding for Peter. Yet it was the wound of a faithful friend and a faithful Savior. But Peter's wounding was nothing compared to Jesus' wounding. For you and I to be reclaimed and restored to God, Jesus had to be wounded Himself. For Isaiah writes that He was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. It was the cross that brought us reconciliation. Do you have that friend or that parent or that spouse that is faithful in their wounding? Who loves you enough to confront your sin? Who loves you enough not to let you get away with a shallow repentance or no repentance at all? If you don't have such a friend, pray fervently that the Holy Spirit will send you such a friend. One who will love you faithfully. One who will wound you faithfully as well. And then lastly, we see the reclamation that Jesus brings to us is a restored calling. Peter was a forgiven man. 
Jesus had seen the repentant and humble heart of Peter, but the question still remained, could he be an effective servant? Could he still use him? Would he still use him? I remember wondering the same thing after the church we planted in Missouri closed. We had failed to thrive, and I felt responsible. I could point to a pattern of trying to grow the church in my own strength. I could point to several costly mistakes in leadership. I could even point to outside factors that led to its closing. In the days following that closing, I remember thinking, can God or will God ever use me in pastoral ministry again? I I wasn't sure. I moved us to my home state of Mississippi to regroup. You might say I went fishing again. I went back into the world of accounting, a world that I was very familiar with. We got plugged into a solid church and God began to feed and and tend our souls through the preaching and teaching of God's Word and, and relationships with people in that church body. It soon became evident to us that God wasn't done with me yet. He still wanted to use me. It had been a humbling time. Lots of wounding, lots of growth. But it prepared me to answer the call to Rivermont. Jesus wasn't done with Peter yet either. Following Peter's repentance, Jesus commanded him to shepherd God's flock, to feed his sheep, to tend his lambs. He, Peter, was to devote his life to feeding God's flock, to preach and teach God's word to God's people. But also he was called to to devote his life to tending to that flock, to protect the flock from itself and its incessant wandering, to protect the flock from those who would undermine the gospel in their life. We see the fruit of that shepherding, especially in 1 Peter 5. As Jesus promised, Peter did in fact give his life shepherding the sheep because that's what shepherds do. Who would have thought that Peter's calling could have ever been restored? Who could have foreseen that Peter would once again be a catalyst for the gospel as he shepherded God's flocks? Certainly not Peter. But this isn't just about Peter. It's about you as well. God can do a great work through failures. He can accomplish a great deal for the kingdom through humbled and repentant and broken servants. Men and women whose confidence is in Christ and not themselves. Who engage in deep repentance through the faithful wounding of Christ. God has called you and I to feed and tend His flock. Whether in this church family or your biological family your neighbors, your co-workers, your workout partners, even those on the other side of the city, God has called us to pour ourselves into the lives of His sheep as His shepherds. And we don't do that in our own strength or our competence because you know what? Frankly, we'll fail. We shepherd God's flock by trusting in His strength, knowing that in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. As you shepherd God's flock, May you do so with restored confidence, one that is centered upon the sufficiency of Christ's saving work. And may you model before the flock a lifestyle of deep repentance, not trying to project an image of spirituality, but living transparently before others. And above all, may you experience His joy and His pleasure as you shepherd God's flock, knowing that He cares for them and for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus who has in fact reconciled us to You, O Father, who has 
brought about our repentance through the Spirit's work and has restored not only our confidence, not in ourselves, but in You, that You have restored our calling. You have given us the specific call, each of us, to tend the flock that You have given us to shepherd. But it's not our flock, it's Your flock. And would You equip us for that good work? Would You anchor us in the love and the hope and the peace and the joy of our Lord Jesus? We pray this in His name. Amen.